man was 40 years old before he could say that his grandfather was an alcoholic. He had known the fact for 25 years, but it took that long before he could acknowledge it verbally. After researching his family history, he learned about a train accident that had adversely affected the way his great-grandmother had dealt with life, including her children. And by the time then that this man was 40, he was finally able to recognize the sense of shame that had spilled down through the generations in his family history. And when he realized that and could speak it out loud, he learned a lot about who he was. It explained a lot about who he was and how he was and the way he interacted with other people. This piece of knowledge empowered the man to change his behavior so that his relationship with his wife became more open. He expressed more vulnerability with his children And it affected every other relationship as well. For him, it was something that freed him. And yet it still takes a lot of strength and courage to make a change. To change, in this case, a family system. You always face resistance when you take on a system. Whether it's you trying to change the way you respond to your sibling whether it's a church trying to change the way it responds to an ever-changing society, or whether it's a nation trying to change its health care system. It takes strength and courage to change a system. Think about the system in which Jesus and his disciples lived and served. They were Jews in a territory occupied by the Roman Empire. The system rarely acted in their favor. And so, for James and John, imagining themselves elevated to a place of glory and power, that made them salivate like a dog being teased with a milk bone. They were among the closest friends of their rabbi and leader, and so didn't they deserve a place of honor with him? Our first clue that they knew they didn't is that they asked Jesus to grant their wish before telling him what they want. Now, you've never heard anyone do this, have you? Can you do me a favor? Only if you are a very generous and trusting person is your response, sure, what is it? A more typical response drops that first word, sure, to respond suspiciously, what is it? And then only after we hear the favor and think through the consequences of doing it will we actually commit to it or not. Jesus might have had a look of amusement in his eyes when he says to his disciples, these two, guardedly, what is it you want me to do for you? And though Jesus knew their request to him was self-gratifying, he doesn't put them down. You know, sometimes he gives these disciples a hard time, but he didn't do that this time. Melissa Bain's severe comments that James and John probably had in mind some earthly or heavenly palace 
a throne, a couple of extra scepters, a great deal of authority where they would reign as benevolent yet firm co-leaders with their Lord. And yet, if you've read all the way through the book of Mark, your mind might jump forward to something else that's on the left and right of Jesus. And it's not thrones, it's crosses. This is hardly a realization of anyone's definition of glory. It's not the kind of glory I would think that James and John were thinking of when they asked Jesus for a favor. Jesus asked them if they could drink that cup, meaning the cup of suffering. They said, of course they could drink that cup, meaning the cup of glory. He told them they would indeed share in his fate. And so then there are the other ten disciples who had been watching and listening to this conversation, getting very angry with the two brothers. And Jesus used the moment to speak to all of them about leadership. And if you think about Mark's purpose in writing this, he probably chose to record this interchange as a lesson to the leaders in the early church, of which he was a part. Don't be like those worldly rulers you see around you, Jesus told them. And they knew what he meant. They could see Herod's palace, the governors, and even the priests who did not consider those over whom they had authority. The twelve believed, perhaps, that they could be different rulers, benevolent rulers. If they had authority, they would use it wisely. They would take care of the people. They would be benevolent. But for Jesus, leading goes far beyond benevolence. A benevolent ruler would wave from the rooftops to adoring crowds. Jesus walked among the crowds so that they pressed on him and wore him out. A benevolent ruler sends servants to care for important invited guests. Jesus invited everyone to the banquet, his banquet, and washed their feet himself when they arrived. A benevolent ruler hopes that people will be fed. Jesus broke enough bread and fish to feed a crowd. A benevolent ruler sees that laws are applied as fairly as possible to as many as possible. Jesus taught about God's law as the law by which we should live. A benevolent ruler may even give up something for others. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many. He changed the system. Now, change within a system rarely happens all at once. Most people know Rosa Parks as the black woman who refused to go to the back of the bus and then ignited the 1955 bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, that which became a key victory in the civil rights movement. And what I didn't know is I sort of assumed that her decision was kind of spur of the moment, but learned that it wasn't. That Rose, I learned that Rosa Parks had spent the previous 12 years helping lead the local NAACP chapter. And the summer prior, she had attended a 10-day training session in Tennessee at a labor and civil rights organizing school. So for some time, she had been studying civil rights, activism, and other boycotts, and she had already been arrested in one in Baton Rouge two years earlier. 
Parks changed the social system. Jesus was changing a social system, but also, more importantly for us, in a different social setting, Jesus was changing a spiritual system. Jesus was changing the way we relate to God. He calls us in this passage to examine our motives. Why do we do what we do? Why did James and John go to Jesus and say, would you do this favor for us? Can we sit at your right and your left in glory? They did that for personal gain. What are our motives? Now, thinking about our motives is a a pertinent question at budget time. And I can thank one of you for this. I don't know whether to do it publicly or not, but I got this birthday card, uh, playfully, and it says, three books for Sunday worship. And you've got the holy book, and you've got the hymn book, and you've got, can you guess the third? The checkbook. (laughs) I thought that was pretty cute. And luckily, that's the way it was intended. So, as we, the ushers, I think the ushers are going to hand the budgets out following worship at each of the four doors. I'm requesting that you do now if you weren't asked to before. (laughs) As you look at that over the next couple of weeks, you get a chance to examine the priorities and the values of this church, or at least as they're being presented to you by the stewardship committee. And you get to say, okay, what are the motives for this line item? And what are the motives for this line item? Are we giving enough towards X? And maybe Y doesn't need as much? Or, you know, all those kinds of questions come up. What are our motives in our church budget? What are our motives as servants of Christ? Tom Stocks was in the dining room this morning during the Sunday school hour, encouraging us to like Moses, look at the things that we have, the things that God has given to us, and to find ways to use those as servants of God. And I would say, think about our motives as we do so. Are we doing it for personal glory? Are we doing it to magnify Jesus Christ? Maybe... Someone visited you in the hospital, or maybe someone made a meal and brought it to you when you were home and things weren't going well. And through the ministry teams, you have the opportunity to carry that forward. It seems to me that we're motivated in areas where we have had personal experiences. If no one has ever brought a meal to me, as some of you did after I had a baby then I'm not going to be very motivated to take a meal to someone else because I don't know how much it means. So it's those personal experiences. My, um, my niece, who's 14, posted this note on Facebook that at her youth group Friday night, someone mentioned babies crying at an orphanage in Romania, and I don't think I heard another word after that. That image touched her. She all of a sudden had a personal experience, and that changed 
the way she thought. Give you a few seconds to think, recall a time when you were touched by something you heard or something you experienced. What difference did that make in your life? Did it motivate you to some form of action? Let me tell you a little about Gordon Cosby and what was birthed from his experiences. Cosby's roots are in the Baptist church, but the church which he helped create is different from any other that I've ever heard of. Some churches have modeled themselves on it, but this was the first. Gordon Cosby was an army chaplain in World War II in Europe, and there he was responsible for the spiritual needs of soldiers who were scattered across France in rural towns, in small units. Sorry, not rural towns, but small units. He realized that he could not be present to minister to the flocks, all these little flocks around the country. And so he took a page from Paul's writings, and he worked within each small unit to train lay leaders who could provide responsive support and prayer when there was a need. He traveled, like Paul did, from unit to unit, training and encouraging these lay pastors. Well, after returning to the United States, Gordon, his wife Mary, and seven others founded the Church of the Savior in Washington, D.C. The church has a strong emphasis on commitment to spiritual growth, what they call the inner journey, and mission, what they call the outer journey. In the 70s, a lot of churches were adopting small groups, which we have done as well for Bible study and fellowship. And at that time, Church of the Savior began asking for more commitment and required every member to be in a mission group. Rather than then grow larger and more centralized, like we're seeing in some of the mega churches today, Gordon's vision was to stay small and poor. So in 1976, six little churches formed around various issues. One was housing, one was children, hospitality, polyculturalism, public policy, and retreat. Now, in the last 20 years, one of these has ended and five more have been born out of a call to new missions, born from the people who are within and who are committed to seeing things happen. Things like renewing a neighborhood in Washington, D.C. Another one is for health care for the homeless. Another one, post-AA recovery. A servant leadership school. And one called Church of the Servant Jesus. All of these emphasize the inward journey and the outward journey. And people commit each year. They renew their commitment or they withdraw their commitment from the church. But through their mission groups, they have accountability to stay connected to Jesus on the inner journey and to reach out to others in mission on the outward journey. 
It took years. But Gordon Cosby and eight others changed a system. They have touched the lives of thousands of people in Washington, D.C. and beyond. I think his motive was to serve God as faithfully as possible. The idea of not becoming a megachurch and not focusing on on me, Gordon Cosby, made a difference. That's what has made the church successful, is they have taken Jesus' image of servant and carried that through. Now, I think there's one caveat that I, I need for myself, and maybe you do too, and that is that sometimes God wants us to do something that doesn't make sense to us at the time. And I say, go for it. And the Spirit, I think, is telling us through our intuition, through our gut, through our conscience, whatever it may be, that we need to care for somebody. We need to stop on the side of the street and make sure somebody's okay. That, you know, whatever it may be, sometimes we just need to listen and go with our gut. But other times, when we have time to think, about what we are going to do with our time. We're called by Jesus to examine our motives. What am I trying to get out of this? Ego strokes? Or am I being a channel for the love of God? Each of us can make a difference, whether it's to one person or a thousand. When we let God's call motivate us to examine our motives and or act the way the Holy Spirit guides us, then we too will be those servant leaders that Christ calls us to be. Let's pray for courage to do that now. Lord our God, we do confess that we feel inadequate that we sometimes are, feel too exhausted to do your work. And yet we pray then for wisdom to order our priorities according to yours, according to care for you, care for ourselves, and care for others. And when it's time, give us the courage and strength to reach out in Jesus' name. Amen.